Hello, my name is Zaid Wahab, and I would like to welcome you to The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. Episode 1, Introductions. When making introductions, it is generally helpful to know who it is you are speaking to. As such, I have expended a considerable amount of effort trying to picture you, my listener. Having too little to go on, basically all I know about you is that you speak English and have access to the internet, I have decided to cover you in assumptions. My first assumption about you is that you want to know more about all the caliphs there have ever been and are extremely interested in yet wholly unaware of the historical forces that led to the creation of the first caliphate, which, incidentally, gives us a great place to start. I further assume that you are unfamiliar with the geography of the Middle East and will need a little help placing some of the cities, regions, and boundaries we will be talking about. I'll keep this in mind when recording and be sure to provide maps for reference when uploading episodes. My final assumption about you, and this is a big one, one I not so secretly hope is not entirely true, is that you don't speak any Arabic. This will probably make it difficult for you to remember, let alone pronounce, the names of the various characters we'll be talking about. This is not an easy point for me to address, and so I'll have to ask you to bear with me. Arabic nomenclature can get complicated, with people being referred to by their names and nicknames, their titles and honorifics, their paternal lineages, or even in relation to the names of their children, something technically called a technonym. I'll do my best to keep it simple by limiting our historical figures to a single name, which I'll make sure to repeat often for good measure. Also, when introducing someone new, I'll try to give you an idea of how important they'll be to our story, so that you never have to meet someone, commit their names to memory, only to never hear about them again. For those of you who do understand Arabic, I'll try and keep all this subtle so that it's not too conspicuous. So now that I know everything there is to know about you, let me introduce myself. I want to start by saying that I have neither academic nor professional qualifications to be telling you what to believe about the caliphs or anything else we'll be talking about. This podcast is a product of many different factors. My deep interest in Arab history is one, an admiration for Mike Duncan's The History of Rome is another, and my inability to find a podcast on the subject last year are just a few. I put those all together with my recent abundance of free time, and, well, here we are. Basically, I have read a lot on the subject of Arab history and want to arrange all I have learned about it for my own benefit. I want to go through the various sources, relate all the major happenings to the reigns of the ruling caliphs, and kind of get their view from the top. Of course, we'll discuss other people, events, and ideas, but I think our attention will always revolve around the caliph himself. Why this near-maniacal focus? Well, for one, many of the caliphs led genuinely interesting lives that have a whole bunch of great stories in them just waiting to be told. This is a pretty diverse group. There were pious caliphs, warrior caliphs, pleasure-seeking caliphs, child caliphs, and all sorts of murdered caliphs. I think focusing on the caliphs will give us a great perspective from which to view the evolution of a community of believers into an empire, then another greater empire, before disintegrating into multiple dynasties, 
and fizzling out in a sea of other identities. As the subtitle and previous sentence may have given away, there is another theme to this podcast as well, the waxing and waning of Arab power. Armed with the unity granted to them by Islam, the tribes of the Arabian desert came to dominate lands far beyond what we think of today as the Middle East. The caliphate was their approximation of what legitimate political rule should be, and the caliph was meant to look after their interests. As the empire grew, they became a minority, and subsequently found their influence with the caliph greatly reduced. Together, we'll talk about how in less than three centuries, the caliph was transformed from a tribal leader on the fringes of civilization to the most powerful man alive, and finally, to something much more akin to a caged bird. The desert Arabs were forgotten and neglected by the state they had once founded and hunted whenever they tried to rebel against it, exactly the relationship they had with the empires that bordered them before Islam. I'm not sure what I'll do with the podcast after that. Depending on how it's going, I might wrap things up there or continue for a while. I'm pretty comfortable with the history up to a little beyond this point, but as they lose control of their empire, the caliphs become less and less interesting as a vantage point from which to view the unfolding of events, so we might have to switch things up. We have 30 or so caliphs to cover before then, however, so we can just play it by ear when we get there. Now that we know a little more about one another, and we've agreed on the basic direction this podcast will be going in, we can start introducing the subject itself. I feel that listeners won't be ready to hear about the first caliph until they know more about the community he's leading, its goals and interests, its lands and its neighbors, and most importantly, how it sees itself. I don't think we'll get to talking about the first caliph before the fourth episode. So where should we get started from? If you are interested in Arab history, there are a number of books on the subject which I can recommend to you. Philippe Hetti's The History of the Arabs, Albert Horani's A History of the Arab Peoples, and Ira Lapidus's A History of Islamic Societies all come to mind as excellent representations of the genre. If you pause this episode right now and read all three, you'll have noticed that they begin with the same subject, pre-Islamic Arabia. There is no reason for me to blow against such a strong scholarly wind, and so I'll take a cue from these distinguished professors and do the same. Just a note, Contemporary Arabic sources mostly pick the same starting point as well. So let's take a look at the region in the 6th century, about a hundred years before the advent of Islam. If you check the map accompanying this episode, you'll see that this is a large area spread over Asia, Africa, and a bit of Europe. In modern terms, it stretches from Turkey and Greece in the northwest, Ethiopia in the southwest, and Pakistan in the east. You'll notice that the center is dominated by a large desert and that the arable lands run either along the coasts of seas or the banks of rivers. People living in those fertile areas could cultivate their land and live off its bounty, which was often plentiful enough to allow for larger and larger populations. As they grew, they developed complex societies with many of the various trappings of civilization, by which I mean they had their own languages and religions, they produced and traded commodities, and had armies loyal to states that protected their lands. Those living in the desert faced a very different reality. Unable to count on the land for food, they had to rely on herding goats and camels to sustain themselves, and, since animals are higher up the food chain than plants, they could never match the size of settled populations, no matter how large their herds got. 
Also, the desert terrain made sure they faced a recurring need to move around in search of pasture. This constant moving and shortage of food meant that people living in these environments had much smaller communities. Tribes moved together, with the largest ones numbering in the thousands and the smallest ones being comprised of just a few families. It's important to understand that for these nomadic tribes, family bonds were the only bonds. Socially speaking, nothing else existed. We'll have a lot more to say about the nomadic tribes in the desert later. For now, let's meet their neighbors. At the beginning of the 6th century, there were four major powers in this region. The stronger two being the Byzantine and Sassanid empires, respectively centered in their capitals of Constantinople and Ctesiphon, and the smaller two being the kingdoms of Aksum in Ethiopia and the Himyarite kingdom in the Yemen. I hope it goes without saying that all four powers I just mentioned had settled populations. We'll start with the Himyarite discussion, since it's the closest one to the Arab nomads. It's right there on the south of the Arabian Peninsula in the Yemen. In his history of the Arabs, Philippe Hetti suggests that the nomadic Arabs originated from there themselves. He reasons that about once a millennium, the population of the Yemen would get unsustainably high, and some people, probably the most impoverished, would try the desperate gambit of crossing the northern desert in search of new lands on which they could live. This was a trip that would have taken weeks for an experienced and well-supplied caravaner, so it was unlikely they would survive it without all the resources required to prepare themselves, namely a herd of camels, tents, and some weapons. The migrants that took to life in the desert decided to stay there, and thus became the nomadic tribes of Arabia. I'm not sure what sort of evidence I'd need to look for to verify or dispute Professor Hetty's explanation. I mean, the Arabs must have quote-unquote come from somewhere, and of all the settled peoples, the Hemurites were the ones that resembled the Arabs the most, both ethnically and culturally, but that could be explained by the proximity of their geographies. Luckily, the origin of the Arab people lies outside the scope of our interest, so we don't need to get into this any further. The Hemurites had embraced Judaism sometime in the 5th century, but it's unclear how that had happened. There is a story that tells of their king being cured by two Jewish doctors in one of the few oasis towns in the desert while he was laying siege to it on a military expedition. He was so impressed by their skill and service that he ended the siege and converted his entire kingdom. Other, more geopolitically-minded explanations emphasize that the Byzantine Empire and the Kingdom of Exum had both embraced Christianity, and the Hemirites were keen to distinguish themselves from those two so that their populations wouldn't fall sway to the influence of foreign churches. They picked Judaism because it wasn't claimed by any powerful state around them, and they reasoned it was a religion that would engender closer ties to the Sassanids, who had a better relationship with Jews than they did with Christians. Some historical evidence shows that Judaism was the most prevalent non-pagan system of belief in the Arabian desert around this time, but it's not clear if that was a cause or result of the Hemurite conversion. Let's not spend too much time on the Hemurites, as, spoiler alert, they won't even make it through this episode. The two more famous neighbors of the Arabian desert are the Sassanid and Byzantine empires. The Byzantine Empire was the surviving eastern half of what was the Roman Empire, and by the 6th century the Byzantines were Christian, they spoke Greek, and they had an established church with imperial institutions. The empire was centered in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, 
and under the emperor Justinian the Great in the middle of the century was at its largest extent since the loss of its western half. Apart from modern-day Greece and Turkey, the lands it ruled included Greater Syria, Egypt, the entire North African coast, the Balkans, Italy, the south of Spain, and all the islands of the Mediterranean. The House of Sasan founded a Persian dynasty which came to power in the 3rd century, after the fall of the Parthian Empire. They ruled roughly the same area, stretching from modern-day Armenia and Iraq in the west, parts of Turkmenistan in the north, and parts of Pakistan in the east. They spoke Persian, Middle Persian specifically, and followed a sect of Zoroastrianism, which had been the dominant religion in ancient Iran since about 600 BC. Their leader was the Shahanshah, literally King of Kings, and their capital, Tesaphon, lay on the east bank of the Tigris, about 35 kilometers southwest of today's Baghdad. The populations of these two empires had been fighting on and off for centuries, though the warring states themselves had changed. Different iterations of the struggle include Cyrus the Great's conquest of Lydia, Alexander the Great's conquest of Persia, Trajan's conquest of all the lands along the Tigris and the Euphrates, a war in the 6th century that ended with the signing of a supposed 50-year peace, then another war, and, most relevantly, another war in the early 7th century that left both sides militarily drained. They usually fought over territory in Mesopotamia and influence in the Caucasus, though an exceptionally successful campaign by either side would occasionally puncture much further into the other's territory. I don't want to leave you with the impression that the Byzantines and the Sassanids had nothing else on their agendas besides conquering one another. They were large empires with plenty of other things to worry about. For example, regaining power in the West was a recurring project for the Byzantines, which included dealing with the various barbarian kingdoms in Europe and defending other arguably more important borders of their empire. In the 6th century, the Sassanids were similarly working to reconquer lands previously lost to the Heftalites in the east, and the Shahanshah often had to contend with ambitious would-be usurpers and internal dissent. These are just some randomly selected examples to make the point that there were many better things for the Byzantines and Sassanids to worry about than securing their borders along the Arabian desert. In fact, the Byzantines, Sassanids, and Himyarites all had the same idea when it came to dealing with the nomadic tribes, who occasionally raided small, undefended towns for minor booty. Each state employed a tribal confederacy to look after its interests and defend its borders. See, out in the desert, blood bonds were the only ones that could be relied upon to create any social cohesion, which is why people lived amongst their immediate families, close families forming clans, with the tribe being the overarching collective. But for tribes living along the peripheries of kingdoms and empires, the states could create bonds of interest which allowed several tribes to work together towards a common goal. The Hemiarites backed the Kingdom of Kinda, the Byzantines backed the Ghassanids, and the Sassanids backed the Lechmids. To the nomadic tribes in the desert, the latter two confederacies, the Ghassanids and Lechmids, controlled by the Byzantines and Sassanids respectively, were seen as little more than imperial tools. They had, after all, adopted much of their patrons' culture, or at least so it seemed from the perspective of the more nomadic tribes. The leader of the Ghassanids had been made a patrician by the Byzantine emperor, and the Lechmids had a capital city where they could live off the land. Also, they had both converted to Christianity. 
The kinda, in contrast, have enjoyed a much more exalted status in Arab memory, with one of the descendants of their last king being the highly praised warrior poet Umrul Qais. The kinda, though, were the first to be vanquished, as their patron would be the first to fall. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned the kingdom of Aksum, but haven't said anything about it yet as it didn't share any borders with the Arabian desert. It had adopted Christianity around 325 AD, and as a kingdom only a narrow strait away from the Yemen, the Hamirites were worried about its influence over their people. The story goes that early in the 6th century, one of the Hamirite kings named Dulnuas, which literally translated means the one with the sidewalks, destroyed churches and persecuted the Christian residents of the city of Nujran. This unprovoked assault on their co-religionists led the kingdom of Aksum to invade the Yemen, in the year 525 AD. They swiftly prevailed over the Hemurite armies and put old sidelocks to death. Either a Christian Hemurite or an Aksumite was appointed in his place, but he in turn was overthrown by a mutinous Aksumite general named Abraha, who had the support of Aksumites living in the Yemen. After a short conflict with his kingdom over his seizure of its tribute, relations and payments were restored, and Abraha became a sort of viceroy in Yemen, where he ruled for a few decades, fervently working to spread Christianity on the Arabian Peninsula. One of his sons ruled after him, while another fled from his half-brother's domain, hoping to incite a rebellion that would place him on the throne instead. The Byzantines refused to help, but the Sassanids, maybe eyeing more control of the sea trade with the east, chose to oblige. They put together a relatively small army of 8,000 men, sailed them close to modern-day Aden, and marched against the capital Sana'a. They took the city, expelled the Aksumites, and installed a son of the man who had come to them for help as the new king. The kingdom renounced Persian overlordship a few years later, but was annexed as a Sasanian province after being reconquered in the year 598 AD. And so, this is how things stood around the Arabian Peninsula at the start of the 7th century. The Aksumites had retreated to Africa, the Sasanids controlled the Yemen, and both they and the Byzantines depended on rival tribal confederacies in the Arabian desert. Now that we've covered all the neighboring states, let's take a closer look at the peninsula itself. Apart from the fertile Yemen in the south, the Arabian Peninsula is mainly an expansive desert. It did, however, still constitute an important link for international trade at the time. The seafaring people on the south and east of the peninsula had access to Indian goods and sought markets for them in other states. The nomadic Arab tribes found a source of prosperity in taking this on themselves, buying goods in the south and traveling to the Byzantine cities in the north to sell them off to local merchants. With time, these trips attained a seasonal regularity, journeys south being made in the winters and northern ones taking place in the summer. The topography of the peninsula restricted this lucrative business to the tribes inhabiting the western parts of the desert. If you look at the second map I've provided with this episode, you'll see that close to the western coast of the peninsula, all the way from the Yemen in the south to the Dead Sea in the north, there is a range of mountains. This area was and is locally known as the Hejaz, a name close to the Arabic word for barrier, or roadblock, for the way its mountains separate the interior of the desert from the coast. It was the Hejazi tribes, those living in the Hejaz, who dominated trade between the Byzantines and whoever was ruling in the Yemen. 
So far, I've been trying to avoid the term Arab, opting for nomadic tribes in the desert and inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula in an effort not to muddle things, but it's time to lay out the issue and agree on a definition. Today, the Arabian Peninsula represents less than a quarter of the Arab world's area and less than a fifth of its population, the Arab world being all the countries and peoples that identify as Arab. These countries all have Arabic listed as a national language, and all but one have officially adopted Islam as the state religion. As language and religion are the main proofs these countries offer for their being Arab, we can safely say that today the word Arab is mostly a cultural descriptor rather than an ethnic one. At the beginning of the 7th century, however, there was no tension between the cultural and ethnic dimensions of the term Arab, or at most very little tension. I mean that the tribes of the Arabian desert were all the Arabs that there were in the world. The little tension is in reference to the question of whether the tribal confederacies employed by the Byzantines and Sassanids could be considered Arabs. It's an open question. They were ethnically similar, and some spoke Arabic, and they traded with the Arabs, but they also spoke the languages of their patrons, adhered to Christianity, and crucially, were not as nomadic as the other Arab tribes, all things that set them apart from the cultural uniformity of the desert. As we've seen so far, all the states bordering the Arabian Peninsula had their respective religions, and the Arabs will soon unite around their own. Before embracing Islam, it seems like most tribes held pagan beliefs, worshipping idols that interceded with the fates on their behalf. They believed in a world of spirits both powerful and benign, and sometimes sanctified natural phenomena. They believed in the power of celestial objects, ascribing much influence to the stars, the moon, and all five planets. They were therefore pretty keen on astrology, so much so that one of the Arab sources I've been relying on makes sure to note the astronomical position of all these celestial objects whenever a new caliph is proclaimed. The religions beyond their borders also leaked into the desert with time, so depending on where a tribe was, its members would be aware of Christianity, Judaism, or Zoroastrianism. Not only that, but wherever arable land could be found in the desert, usually by some oasis or groundwater spring, you would find a town with a settled population that had either Jews or Christians. All this monotheism had an influence on the Arabs, and there were some who renounced paganism and idolatry for a kind of personal, unarticulated version of monotheism, the Hanafis. They got their name from the Arabic verb Hanafa, which means to turn away from something, and they were a small minority who were known for their spiritual inclinations and their scorn for tribal divisions and politics, an extension of the unity they saw in their creator to their society. As nomads themselves, they never formed the kinds of religious institutions which give faiths the staying powers required to survive, and so there aren't any left for us to point to today. Now that we've covered their various creeds, let's move on and talk about the language of the Arabs. At this point in time, Arabic had not yet been formalized, and it lacked a versatile script for reading and writing. There are inscriptions left by Arabs from the 7th century and earlier, but they are impossible to read for anyone who isn't a specialist in the field. Check the references posted along this episode for examples of the inscriptions I'm talking about, and an informative discussion of the origins of the Arabic language. The author calls his theory controversial. I'm including the reference more for the information about the subject than the theory, though. Without a script, orality was the order of the era. 
Tribes moved around together and interacted mostly internally, so we should not be surprised to learn that they often had different words for verbs and nouns. The grammatical structure must have been similar enough, however, as Islam would encounter no significant language barrier when spreading across the peninsula. Another marker of irality for the Arabs at this stage was their love of poetry. As will become abundantly clear, the Arabs loved, loved, loved poetry. They would compose it to the rhythm of their horses' hoofbeats. They would compose it in the midst of war to either taunt or intimidate their opponents. They would compose it to praise their own tribe or to belittle another's. Births, weddings, eulogies, and all other social events were liable to create much poetry. And without a script to write it all down in, the Arabs would have to memorize it, something they got very, very good at. They'd had plenty of practice memorizing their own lineages, a necessity in the desert, where your full name, which at the very least included your father's, grandfather's, and great-grandfather's, and your tribe's name, formed a kind of identity and personal history. You were expected to not only know yours, but also be able to identify others. If you were told someone's full name, you should be able to recognize not only their tribe, its general location and maybe recent activity, but also that person's own standing within it either by recognizing their clan or some famous ancestor. I've included a tribal map of Arabia to give you an idea of the breakdown of the peninsula at that time. While they did think of themselves in tribal terms, this preoccupation with ancestral descent also had a unifying effect of sorts on the Arabs. They reasoned that just like how some tribes were related by a distant ancestor, the Arabs themselves must also have common roots. Their origin story is complicated and disorganized, but here's what you need to know for now. They saw Arab tribes as either being southern or northern, with the southern ones called Qahtani Arabs having Yemeni origins, and the northern ones called Adnani Arabs having purer nomadic origins. Of course, the southern and northern branches were split into many offshoots several time over, but I wanted to note the southern-northern distinction as it will play an important part in later developments. I think we've covered plenty for a first episode. I introduced both of us to you, we talked briefly about the podcast and the states around the Arabian Peninsula, then a bit more about the Arabs themselves. Join me next time so we can wrap up our introductions by meeting the man whose name is destined to become the most common given name in the world, the Prophet Muhammad, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (laughs) 